It's summer. The sun is shining, and a woman named Trudy is out running an errand for her husband at a copy shop near her house in the UK. The copy shop was in Woking, which just happens to be McLaren's hometown. It's 2007, and McLaren has a team competing in the Formula One season. Trudy's husband works for McLaren, like a lot of people in this small town, and he needs 780 pages of highly classified work documents copied onto CDs. So his wife Trudy is taking them to the store for him. The guy at the copy shop is routinely sorting the order when he notices something printed on the pages Trudy just handed him. He just happened to notice the Ferrari logo and all the drawings. You might not have heard of McLaren, but you'll definitely have heard of Ferrari. They've got that logo with the black horse prancing on his hind legs as if saying, hey, look at me, I can do something you can't, like buy this expensive car. Well, this dude at the copy store is looking at the drawings of Ferrari cars along with detailed instructions of how to put one together. And each page is stamped with that iconic horse logo. Along with the words, do not copy. It just so happened to be that in a small town full of McLaren folks, this guy at the copy shop was a diehard Ferrari fan. And it's strange that someone is copying documents that clearly aren't meant to be copied. So he looks up the name of the customer. Trudy Coughlin, wife of Mike Coughlin, the chief designer at McLaren. You see, Ferrari, an Italian team, and McLaren, a British one, are longtime rivals. Ferrari is super old. Their racing division has been around since the 20s. And McLaren's F1 team came about much later in the 60s. Ferrari founder Enzo Ferrari has got a thing about new teams. He dismissed them completely and mocked those that didn't have the grand history of Ferrari but still dared to challenge him. He called these upstart teams garagisti, teams that operated out of little raggedy rinky-dink garages, teams like McLaren. But why would someone working at McLaren, Ferrari's biggest rival, have over 700 pages of secret documents detailing the ins and outs of their greatest asset? Well, the shop assistant thinks the exact same thing. He Googles Ferrari until he finds the email address of their sporting director, and he sends them a message. He's saying, uh, I think I'm being asked to photocopy your documents. The next morning, over in Italy, the sporting director sees the email in his inbox. He immediately forwards it to Ferrari's security team, and they take this information directly to the high court in the UK. Ferrari were on the warpath, not only with McLaren, but anyone that they thought was trying to grab their stuff. They get an Anton Pillar order. It's kind of like a search warrant which allows a premises to be turned upside down and any relevant documents to be seized. Particularly if there is a fear that evidence will be destroyed. So the police arrive and they search Mike and Trudy's house. They found 700-odd pages of a 780-page document and evidence that some other pages had been burnt in the back garden. Once word gets out, this discovery completely shakes the world of Formula One and goes down as one of the biggest scandals in the history of the sport. But this ain't just another story of a sporting controversy. It's the story of what happens when workplace grievances are allowed to fester, when resentment is allowed to build to the point where a person feels like revenge 
is the only option. It's the story of a huge multinational organization being attacked from the inside and how it destroys the careers, reputations, and lives of those involved. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, we're looking into sabotage and industrial espionage inside one of the world's most popular sports. If you've ever worked at a company that you love and a job that you love, you'll know that their wins can feel like your own wins. When you're valued and treated with respect at a workplace, you're more likely to stay. So you dedicate your career to the company. Years of your life are spent manifesting the vision of your employers. Today's story is about a man who contributed everything to the company he worked for. He loved it so much that he got run over on the job and never complained. But when our man gets overlooked for a promotion at the company he's devoted over a decade to, he starts looking elsewhere. And his actions eventually lead to the loss of over 100 million euros. Freelance motorsport writer Morris Hamilton has been on the beat since 1977. And he's been going to F1 races since he was a kid. My dad took me to my very first motor race when I was seven years old. And from the moment I arrived, I was struck by the sound of these racing engines. Because when you're there, you feel it in your chest, sometimes the noise, you know. The smell, because there is a distinct smell of rubber, burning oil. That smell lingers in Morris's brain, and he hasn't been able to let go of the sport since. It's a very sensual sport. By the time the 2007 Formula One season rolls around, Morris has reported on dozens of championships. I've been to more than 500 Grand Prix. I'm slowing down a little bit now, but in 2007, I was in the heart of everything to do with Formula One. Damn, 500? That's a lot of races. No wonder he can't get the smell of burning tires and oil out of his brain. Morris has seen a lot in his time, but he's especially excited for this season because of one particular driver. Maybe you've heard of him. There was one big story at the start of 2007. And that was the arrival of Lewis Hamilton in Formula One. Lewis Hamilton, a young black British driver. He was just representing a whole new generation of drivers coming through. And we wanted to watch him. And he was joining McLaren. McLaren has signed one of the youngest drivers ever, and notably the first and only black driver to compete in the series. He would have as his teammate Fernando Alonso, who was a twice world champion. So I'm not all that familiar with Formula One, and that was confusing. So let me break it down for you in case you might be confused. Each Formula One team has two drivers. And although these drivers are technically teammates, they're still rivals because they're racing against each other to win the championship. Alonso won the championship in 2005 and 2006 with another team, Renault, before he joined McLaren. But everyone has their eyes on his young rising star of a teammate, Hamilton. And from the very first race, he was incredible. I mean, it was like he'd been doing it for ages. And he gave Alonso a hard time. And we thought, wow. So within McLaren, at the start of the season, you've got Alonso and Hamilton going toe-to-toe trying to prove that they're the best. But they've also got other teams to worry about. 
particularly those guys in red, Ferrari. At that time in 07, Ferrari actually were uh, a very strong force. Ferrari has won five consecutive world championships in recent years. So they're rolling in cash because the winning team is given tens of millions in prize money. McLaren, on the other hand, they haven't won since the late 90s. So they're getting pretty sick and tired of watching Ferrari gloat that they're the best team in the world. McLaren, they've definitely got the drivers, Lewis, the prodigy, and Alonso, the world champ. Now, all they need is a great car. You had Ferrari and McLaren, and their cars were, there's nothing to choose between them from the point of view of performance. The difference in speed is minuscule. Take an average 3.5 mile lap, for example. Those cars will go round there, and they will be separated after three and a half miles by a tenth of a second. Click of a finger, blink of an eye. So teams like McLaren and Ferrari, they look for every little advantage, every little tweak that they can make to their car to make it just that tenth of a second faster. In order to win, the cars are just as important as the drivers themselves, perhaps even more so. You could have the best driver in the world, and if you put him in a car from a small team at the back of the grid, he's not going to win races. So it should come as no surprise that teams are extremely secretive about their cars and how they're designed. It is top secret what they do. But of course, that doesn't stop the teams from trying to sneak a peek at each other's handiwork. Sometimes the spying is pretty obvious. You'll see teams patrolling the start line to examine other cars. You'll even see some mechanics standing around sensitive parts of their cars with their arms folded to block them from view. But other times, the spying is more subtle. Subtle but universally accepted because pretty much every team does it. And over the years, they've gotten pretty slick with it too. I was standing at a corner watching them practice and it was one of the photographers that I knew and he was there and he kept pushing a button on his belt every now and again. And I said, what are you doing? So it turns out, each time this dude is pressing the button, it sends his photos to the team that employs him. The team then sends the photos to their factory where mechanics throw images up on a screen and start dissecting every detail of their rival's cars to try and gain an advantage over them. It's a few races into the 2007 season, and McLaren, they're doing pretty well. Lewis Hamilton has even won two Grand Prix in his first season. It's looking good for McLaren. This could be the year that they take back the crown. But then, everything goes wrong. Between a third and a halfway through the season, and we get there, and the biggest story that I've ever heard in motorsport erupted. After the break, we find out how one pissed off employee's actions resulted in McLaren losing everything they'd been working for. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. 
I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast, where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So McLaren and Ferrari are the top contenders for the 2007 Formula One World Championship. They've both got excellent cars and speed demons behind the wheel. But tensions are bubbling behind the bright red doors of Ferrari. A few years before, Ferrari was dominating F1. They had a well-oiled team and one of the most famous F1 athletes of all time driving for them, Michael Schumacher. But he's not the only reason Ferrari was dominant. There's another key pillar to their team, and his name is Nigel Stepney. He looked sort of very 60s, he had kind of curly dark hair and a, a beard and moustache. This is David Tremaine. He's been reporting on F1 since 1988. He was a smart guy. He knew what he was doing. He was a mechanic, basically, that became fantastically good at minute details. So I can't remember the exact number of races Michael Schumacher finished. I think it was 51 or 57 without a retirement. And that was because of the kind of protocols Nigel had introduced. Nigel started working in F1 in the 70s. He was just a mechanic for a team that doesn't even compete in F1 anymore. Then he worked his way up and moved from team to team until he finally made it to one of the best teams in the world in 1994. Nigel even moved to a house near Ferrari's base in Italy, and he's treated like a legend by everyone he meets. Everybody in the area knows who he is and what he's doing, and they all want to buy him a drink and talk to him about Ferrari. Now, in 2007, Nigel is Ferrari's race and test technical manager. So you'd have the designers that would create gearboxes, engines, suspension systems, but it was the combination of all those factors in putting the cars together that the mechanics were required to bring to their work. All of those systems Nigel put into place. When Nigel makes the cars, it's like they're bulletproof. Back in the day, loads of people used to stop mid-race due to things like mechanical failures or software issues. Nowadays, we take it for granted that most of the cars make it to the finish line. But according to David, Nigel is one of the people responsible for that. And obviously the fact that the cars were so reliable, Michael loved him because he gave him a car that never broke. And generally it was a very cohesive team at that time. He's a treasured and integral cog in the Ferrari machine, loved by all. And he's really earned that. In the 2000 Spanish Grand Prix, Nigel was working on Schumacher's car during a pit stop. When Schumacher was told he could drive off, 
but he didn't realize Nigel was still working on his car, so he ran him over as he sped off. Yes, this dude literally got run over. Nigel had worked so hard to get where he was. He had worked his way up from being Ferrari's chief mechanic to his current role. And he had big dreams of further promotions at the team he loved so much. But at the end of 2006, the Ferrari Dream Team broke up. Michael Schumacher retired, and a new technical director, the top guy who's in charge of the whole engineering pyramid, was hired. A change that probably feels a bit like a gut punch to Nigel. Nigel felt that he should have been a candidate to be technical director. So Nigel takes a step back and asks for a different job at Ferrari. One where he doesn't have to travel so much and he can work in the factory where he won't get run over, which he's granted. He said he was made to feel like a traitor for not wanting to travel anymore. According to Nigel, Ferrari wasn't happy with that decision. So he felt it was a bit of a, a second kick in the teeth, I think, that not only didn't he get the job he wanted, but now when he said he wanted to do less travel, they were sort of effectively treating him as if he was letting the team down. Imagine that. He's put so much time and effort into Ferrari, and now they're icing him out and treating him like he's let them down? After he got run over? This would be a lot for anybody. And Nigel needs to vent his frustrations. So he turns to his friend, McLaren, chief designer, Mike Coughlin. Nigel and Mike have worked together since the early 80s at various teams, including Ferrari. They're calling each other and emailing back and forth about Nigel's situation. Well, there's no question that that struck a chord with Mike. That he was unhappy with his, so they were kind of two disgruntled guys comforting each other, if you like. Mike understands how the teams are structured because he also works in Formula One. Mike had a reputation as being a, a fairly sharp designer. Makes sense. Two pissed off employees complaining to each other. A lot of people do it. Complain to their work bestie about the boss who's been riding them a little too hard and isn't paying them enough. But the thing is, Mike doesn't work for Ferrari. He was the chief designer at McLaren. Nigel is venting his frustrations to his friend who also happens to be working for the rival team. Yeah, sure, friendship is friendship. It's not all about where you work, but sharing secrets? Nah, that's probably not a good idea. Your money is involved. These guys are supposed to be competing with each other, not calling and texting their workplace gripes. After a while, Nigel reveals something to Mike. The fixing on the floor of the Ferrari, let's say it was not as rigid as other cars. So a degree of flexibility in the floor meant that the floor bent at high speed. Now you see that is against regulations because it gives the car improved aerodynamic performance. The flooring passed the regulatory test in the garage, but when it was out on the track and exposed to higher speeds, it no longer fit the regulations. Nigel says he has proof. He sends Mike some drawings of the floor, and Mike takes them to McLaren. First thing they could say is, get that out of here. You know, we don't want that. We don't need that. We don't want it. And it's like having a dead body in, in stuffed in a cupboard. You'll remember that photographing each other's cars is generally accepted because 
Every team does it, and the cars are in the public eye. But being caught with highly confidential schematics from another team is a very different kind of spying, and it's a massive no-go. So McLaren tells Mike to stop talking to Nigel. But Mike can't just go cold turkey on a friend like that. So he goes to meet Nigel. Supposedly he went to say, please don't send me any more emails. Mike could have emailed Nigel. He could have texted. Hell, he could have even Skyped him if he wanted to make it a bit more personal. But no, Mike flies all the way to Spain where Nigel is vacationing. That's a lot of effort just to supposedly tell someone you're not interested in talking anymore. They get lunch, and maybe they talk at length about how much Mike couldn't talk anymore to Nigel about this over the starter, the main, and the dessert. Finally, Nigel offers to drive Mike to the airport. Before they pull away, Nigel says, hey, take a look at this, and drops a fat stack of papers into Mike's hand. He gave, supposedly gave Mike this 780-page dossier, which was the Ferrari design document for the F2007 car. 780 pages detailing everything about Ferrari's current car. First drawing lines to finish product car information about how to create a Formula One car from beginning to end. But it's not just the diagrams and notes about the design of Ferrari's car. The dossier reveals everything that Ferrari has planned. Things like race setups, you know, the way they adjust the suspension, the wings, the downforce, everything else on the cars. Race strategies, race car preparation, quality control, work schedules, engineering personnel, etc. Now, this dude could have turned down this huge stack of papers, but he says his engineering curiosity got the better of him, so he takes it back to England. These pages could change his career. He's already chief designer at McLaren, but now he's got the key to a winning car. Mike teams up with Nigel, and they have an idea. They think... This is going to give us a huge advantage if we go and talk to a a third team. They want jobs with another F1 team. Better jobs than the ones they have now. So they go to Honda. They would be the new technical force at Honda. And obviously, they were both looking for pay rises, and I'm told Nigel was looking for what was described as silly money. Bear in mind that reports of Nigel's salary are upwards of $1 million. So Lord knows what he was asking for. Honda hires someone else, and Mike and Nigel keep looking. By May of 2007, Nigel hasn't been hired elsewhere, so he's still working at Ferrari, a place where he feels he's been overlooked and treated poorly. And let's not forget, he was literally run over. I can imagine he's feeling a bit resentful. After everything he's put into the team and the success that he's had, everything has suddenly changed for him. But the show must go on. So everyone at Ferrari is preparing for the Monaco Grand Prix. It's one of the most prestigious and glamorous circuits in F1, laid out on the city streets of Monte Carlo, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. But it's a hard race to win because it's almost impossible to overtake another driver on the thin, twisty track. With one driver saying, it's like cycling around your living room. Over in the Ferrari garage, mechanics are perfecting their car for the race. When they spot some white powder around the rim of the fuel tank. Now, any foreign powder in the fuel tank is a serious hazard. 
fundamentally it's going to damage the car if let's say it was sugar it wasn't but let's say it was if you put sugar in fuel it can bring the car to a halt because it gets in the system and messes it up if that were to happen during a race and the car stops suddenly in front of another yes potentially dangerous that's putting it lightly these cars are racing at over 200 miles per hour around the track if one car stops suddenly the cars behind are likely to crash their lives at stake. This powder around the tank, that can't be a mistake. It has to be sabotage. So Ferrari calls the police. After the break, we identify the man at the center of the sabotage. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. It looks like someone has tried to sabotage one of Ferrari's cars. A mechanic has found powder on the rim of the fuel tank. Witnesses claim they saw Nigel loitering near the car just before the powder was found. Now, it makes sense that Nigel would be near the cars because he works at Ferrari and he oversees how the cars are put together. He's responsible for bulletproofing these cars, so he knows them inside out. But the police search him. There's that ridiculous story about Nigel having to take his trousers off for the Carabinerian. Yeah, you heard that right. According to reports, Nigel has to give his pants to the Italian police after a witness alleges that they saw him emptying some white powder out of his pocket. They miraculously find the powder in the pockets, and then his house was raided twice. The powder in Nigel's pocket and in his house matches the powder from the fuel tank. But Nigel is adamant that he's been framed. He knew a lot about the technicalities of that car, that he could do lots of other things that you would never see to nobble the car. That was so blatant that he would never... It's just daft. He just wouldn't do it. It just didn't stack up. And he said that. He said, oh, why would I do that? On top of that, he says that he'd left his pants unattended in the changing room while he showered, so anyone could have had access and planted the powder. But Ferrari fires him nonetheless, and Nigel disappears. After over a decade with Ferrari, his life has been flipped upside down by them. He hasn't been given the job at Honda, he's been fired, 
And now, everybody thinks he sabotaged the car. Who's going to hire him now? But by June of 2007, Ferrari is still blissfully unaware that Nigel has leaked their entire plan for the season to Mike. And if Mike wants to keep it that way, it's probably not a good idea to be lugging around 780 pages stamped with Ferrari's logo. 780 pages of paper? That's bulky and heavy. That's when he sends his wife to a copy shop to get the papers put onto CDs. It's at this point that Ferrari finally finds out about the leaked data. A juicy story like that, you can't keep it contained. So it explodes at the British Grand Prix in July. The information coming through was, it was Ferrari and they issued a release to say they had sent special investigators round to McLaren employee because they believed he had information about Ferrari. It's a complete bombshell for journalists, teams and fans alike. You couldn't imagine it because McLaren were squeaky clean. I mean, they were. Ron Dennis, their boss, was meticulous about everything, from the way he dressed to the way the team operated, the principles that they had and everything. For them to be accused of having Ferrari information was mind-boggling, was simply mind-boggling. We couldn't take it in. The Formula One world is going crazy. Nobody really knows what's going on. So Morris needs to get information from the people involved. He needs to find Nigel Stepney. He'd been fired and gone to ground. Nobody could find him. Not even Ferrari could find him. But luckily for Morris, another F1 reporter named Jen Nottage has managed to get hold of Nigel's number. David Tremaine, Morris, and Jen hatch a plan. We agreed if we come into the circuit at 8 o'clock on the Saturday morning early before anybody else arrived, we would ring Nigel and the three of us would talk to him. So a couple of days later, David, Morris, and Jen get together in the morning and dial. And Nigel answers. He wants to get his story out there, but he's afraid. He tells them... He'd left Italy because he said he was being followed and he was being threatened by Ferrari. And his wife and young daughter were, were being threatened, so he just had, he'd left the country. He says that there was tracking gear on his car. He's been followed by cars with Italian plates and even says that there have been high-speed chases. This is like scenes from a movie. He claims that he managed to corner one of the cars, but the men in it refused to talk. Afraid that someone was going to get hurt, he left Italy. We asked him on three separate occasions during the conversation, did you send us information? No, I didn't. He denies sharing the 780 pages. He says, I put a lot of systems and working practices in place at Ferrari relating to the operation of the test and race team and preparation of the cars. Information, I'm told, was supposed to be in the documents. So if I already had all that material in my head, why would I need it all again? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Why hand over 780 pages that can only get him in trouble when he could probably tell them without all the paperwork? Nigel alludes to Ferrari secrets that haven't come to light yet. He said, Ferrari is terrified that what I have in my mind is valuable. I guess I know where the bodies have been buried for the last 10 years. There were a lot of controversies. Who knew that a little water cooler gossip would be worth so much? In July of 2007, McLaren suspends Mike Coughlin, and the governing body of motorsport, the FIA, announced their investigation. They go through all of McLaren's computers, analyze 288 SMS messages, and 35 phone calls between Mike and Nigel. Finally, they come to the conclusion that the Ferrari information didn't get any further than Mike Coughlin. 
it hasn't been passed around to the rest of the McLaren team. McLaren crushes Ferrari on their home ground in Italy, and it feels like things are finally looking up. But a fight is brewing, and tensions are about to peak, causing one driver to spill some tea. It's about halfway through the season now, and it turns out, unsurprisingly, that McLaren drivers Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton are butting heads. Hamilton ignores his team's instructions to let his teammate go in front of him, and at the Hungarian Grand Prix, Alonso retaliates. Months of tension between the drivers finally leads to an outburst from Alonso to the big boss, Ron Dennis, at McLaren. Apparently, Fernando had gone storming down to Ron and said, I know things, and if you don't favor me over Lewis for the rest of the year, I'm going to tell teacher, i.e. Max Mosley. Max Mosley is the president of the governing body, the FIA. Alonso admits to Ron that he's got access to Ferrari information, information the FIA thought hadn't gone any further than Mike Cochlin. I don't think Lewis had any of it because I think Fernando would keep whatever he thought might be an advantage to himself. But Ron is a straight-laced guy and he prides himself on McLaren's reputation. He's not going to keep this a secret and he's certainly not going to be held to ransom by Alonso. And the first thing Ron did then was pick up the phone to Max and say, I understand there's, there's more than I thought there was in our team. The FIA launched another investigation, and that's when they discover a bunch of messages about the Ferrari documents between drivers and Mike Coughlin. There's these emails that have gone between Mike and Pedro de la Rosa, who is the test driver, and Fernando Alonso. There were these interesting things about how it had the design of Ferrari's band wing, which was this sort of overarching wing across the front of the car, and also that they filled their tyres with carbon dioxide instead of nitrogen and the weight distribution. So McLaren is punished. They're fined $100 million. On top of the fine, McLaren is stripped of all of their team points. I really don't know what that's worth in funding, but it's got to be well over $50 million. So the team has been punished, but McLaren's drivers could still get enough points to win. It's down to the final race, October 2007, the Brazilian Grand Prix. Kimi Raikkonen, who has not been the favourite at all in the other Ferrari, he'd been way behind them. But because McLaren were tying themselves in knots a little bit because of this spying stuff and Alonso bickering with Hamilton, they were taking points off each other. It allowed Raikkonen to come through the middle and win the championship, and he never really ought to have won at the final race. Ferrari wins the world championship again, despite everything McLaren has been trying to do to beat them. The races have been dramatic and a lot of fun to watch, but off track, it's been a nightmare, so everyone's glad the season is over. And there was this poisonous atmosphere, which was just horrible in 2007, by the end of the year. I was just wanting to punch anything because it was just, you know, I didn't think it was right what had happened. There's a level of acceptable cheating in F1, spying on each other's cars, hired photographers, and so on. That means there's a line drawn, but that line started somewhere and it got pushed and it'll probably continue to get pushed. But perhaps these guys were ahead of their time and just pushed it too far too soon. It's such a high-tech, detailed sport where every um, millisecond counts that an awful lot of it is in how you 
um, interpret the rules. And as Bernie Eccleston used to say, it's never cheating until you get caught. But what about Nigel? Well, he never worked in F1 again. He was sentenced to 20 months in prison by an Italian court after being found guilty of sabotage, industrial espionage, and sporting fraud. But he served no time in prison. The evidence was certainly stacked against him when it came to the 780 pages of documents. But what about the car and the mysterious powder? Well, Morris and David are inclined to believe that Nigel is innocent. I think because he was so high up in the hierarchy that it would have been expensive to just fire him. They had to have an excuse, you know, the point of view that it would have cost him. I don't know. That's my, that's my speculation. I'd be surprised, to be honest, if Nigel Stepney, with everything he devoted to Ferrari, with Michael Schumacher, was then throwing sugar in the fuel tank of a Ferrari. Years later, in May of 2014, Nigel was involved in an incident on a motorway in the UK. He stopped his van on the hard shoulder, got out, locked the doors, and stepped out in front of an oncoming vehicle. According to reports, at the inquest of his death, a friend stated that Nigel had recently asked her to witness the signing of some documents. Turns out, he wanted her to be the trustee on two life insurance policies. Nigel was talented and dedicated to his job for years, and all he wanted was to be recognized and rewarded for his work and rightly so. He was highly respected by the industry, but seemingly not respected enough by the people he worked for. When you give so much to something or someone and there's no reciprocity, there's only so much that you can take before resentment begins to build. That resentment becomes self-destructive. There's a saying that when you hold a grudge against someone else, it's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. Inside he was an evil, vicious human being. A monster, a monster in a lab coat is what I call him. He cheated people of their drugs. He cheated people from their money. And most tragically, he cheated them from their chance to live. He cheated them from life. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.